I invite you to turn to Romans 8. We're going to go back to Romans 8 in our Bibles today. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, uh, that's a newer song. We've taught that just in the last uh, six or eight months or last year. We've taught that. It's one of the Getty songs, which I really like. And I just pulled up the chorus on my um, iPad here. We will stand as children of the promise. We will fix our eyes on him, our soul's reward. Till the race is finished and the work is done, we'll walk by faith and not by sight. And if you notice, each one of the verses is so powerful in meaning. By faith we see the hand of God and the light of creation's grand design. In the lives of those who prove his faithfulness, who walk by faith and not by sight. And in the second verse, by faith our fathers roamed the earth with the power of his promise in their hearts. Of a holy city built by God's own hand, a place where peace and justice reign. We'll stand as children of the promise. And we're singing these songs to the Lord. Hope that we are meditating on them, thinking about what we're singing. They're just so powerful uh, to the Lord. And just before we get into Romans 8, we're going to look at verses 26 through 30 here in a moment. But just as we get into them... Uh, I want to remind you, we're doing communion once a month now, taking communion once a month. And so we'll be taking communion. July 4th falls on a Sunday this year. And so we will be worshiping the Lord on July 4th, and we celebrate Independence Day. And on that day, we'll also be taking communion. And I'm not sure how many we wanted to use up more of the prepackaged before we go back to the other way. So we'll have to take inventory of those. But this is my little extra comment. Please remember to take your communion trash out as you leave and there's a trash can there to the left is the exit the sanctuary and we'd appreciate that that way we don't have to pick them up we've been talking about the holy spirit and we're going to come back to the holy spirit here in just a moment but i don't know if you noticed but it's the off season for football right now and i love football football is just one of the sports that i really enjoy and enjoy getting into and right now of course it's baseball season and i think it's still basketball season i don't really follow that but i came across this story that goes way back to 1941 of a college football player, Nobel Doss. Noble, Noble, Noble Doss. We'll call him Noble. That's how you spell it. Noble Doss dropped the ball. He dropped one pass. He made one mistake. It was 1941, and he let one pass fall, and it haunted him ever since. He wrote, I cost us a national championship, he said. He, he said that. The University of Texas football team was ranked number one in the nation. Hoping for an undefeated season and a berth in the Rose Bowl, they played conference rival Baylor University. And with a 7-0 lead in the third quarter, the Longhorn quarterback launched a deep pass to a wide-open Noble Doss. The only thing I have between me and the goal, he recalls, was 20 yards of grass. The throw was on target. Longhorn fans rose to their feet. The shorthanded Doss spotted the ball and reached out, but it slipped right through. Baylor rallied. Baylor rallied and tied the score with seconds to play. Texas lost their top ranking and consequently their chance at the Rose Bowl. I think, I think about that play every day, Doss admitted. Not that he lacks other memories. Happily married for more than six decades. 
A father, grandfather, he served in the Navy during World War II. He appeared on the cover of Life magazine with the Texas teammates. He intercepted 17 passes during his collegiate career, a university record. He won two NFL titles with the Philadelphia Eagles. The Texas High School Hall of Fame and the Longhorn Hall of, Hall of Honor include his name. Both the High School Hall of Fame and the Longhorn Hall of Honor include his name. Most fans remember the plays Doss made and the passes he caught. But Doss remembers the one he missed. Once upon meeting a new Longhorn head coach, Doss told him about the bobbled ball. It had been 50 years since the game, but he wept as he spoke. That one mistake, that one ball dropped, still haunted him through his life. Sometimes we get weighed down with our mistakes, don't we? Praise God, we don't have to do that with salvation. Amen? In Jesus, our salvation is great and it is awesome. God does not drop the ball. We may drop balls, even spiritually speaking, we may. And we can repent and turn to God, and God does not drop balls. The Holy Spirit draws us to Him. The Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We can focus on the optimistic, awesome truth of God, and not the mistakes we have made. Do you realize that sometimes, many of you do realize it, sometimes there are mistakes that you've made, and they weigh on you. And they're not mistakes dropping a football or missing a touchdown or something else sports related. The devil and sin nature and things like that sometimes remind us of real, really important mistakes. And once you've repented of them, you can rest assured that you are forgiven. By the grace of God, Jesus' blood on the cross has covered your sin. I decided to divide the message today into two parts. It's one of those that I wrote out the message and it was weighing on me and I thought, this is just too much of, for one Sunday. And it's a powerful passage as we go from Romans chapter 8 verse 26 to the end of the chapter verse 39. This is a powerful passage of scripture. So I divided it into two parts. Uh, it'll be a two-part message talking about our victory in Christ. This is all about how the Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit, talks about our victory in Christ. Our victory in Christ. And today, we will talk about the Holy Spirit's help in our prayer life. The Holy Spirit helps us in our prayer life. And we're going to talk today also about God's good plan of salvation. God's perfect good plan of salvation. So my theme today is victory in Christ. The Holy Spirit's help in God's good plan. The Holy Spirit's help in God's good plan. So as we look at this, we're going to start at verse 26 and go to verse uh, 30 today. In verses 26 through 27, we see the Holy Spirit's help. I want to read verse 26. It says in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself, that's a capital S, that means the Holy Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Isn't that powerful? In the previous verses, the Apostle Paul had been instructing on the Christian hope, the Christian hope. And now he begins to build on that Christian hope. 
Look, we all have weaknesses, right? Look at it. It says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Don't we all have weakness? I have weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. And this is saying the Spirit himself helps us in our weaknesses. We are not alone. Paul is explaining here in, in, this, in, in the second part of verse 26. He says, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Paul is explaining, we do not know what to pray for, or we don't know how to pray, or maybe, maybe we cannot pray. But the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. And Paul does not leave it at that. He says, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I don't know... Maybe you've been at a place in your life when you're down, you're sad. It could be from a literal, really, sin issue that you're trying to conquer. It could be from not a sin issue by you. It could be from others. It could be from a medical issue that you or a relative is going through. It could be from something else, just bringing melancholy, sadness, depression, anxiety. It, it could be just many things during the last year, you know, and we sing songs about by faith, but sometimes they're easier sung than, and, and said than lived, right? And that's why, really, it's so important we come together as a body of Christ. We need to spur one along one another on towards loving good deeds as hebrews 10 says but maybe you've been in a place when you're going through hardship and heartache hurts habits and hang-ups or you're going through problems and you can't pray my youth pastor's daughter when he was my well it was before he was my youth pastor his daughter died of leukemia she was 16, 17 years old, and after a two-year struggle or so, she, the, the leukemia went away, and then it came back, and then she eventually passed away and went to heaven of leukemia. As a young girl, they had three daughters, and if I recall, this one was in the middle, in the middle child, and, and God took her home of leukemia as a, as a teenager. And I heard him give testimony about that a number of times, and he would meet with another guy early in the morning to pray. And he said he would get on his knees, and he didn't lose faith during that time, which is common to do. He didn't lose faith. He didn't, lose ang- he didn't become angry with God. But he would get on his knees to pray, and he couldn't pray. He just wept. And he said, he used this passage and said, the Holy Spirit was interceding for him. This says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. Remember that. Take that in. The Holy Spirit is praying for you and for me. The Holy Spirit is interceding between you and God. And how easy it is to just gloss over that verse, just read over that verse. Maybe it's because we've taken in that truth a number of times. And let that sink in today and tomorrow. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. And not just a normal, casual intercession. An intercession with groanings too deep for words. Look at verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit, this is still the Holy Spirit, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And he who searches the hearts, this is the triunity of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He who searches the hearts knows what is the mind 
of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And He, this is likely the Holy Spirit right here, or we could even maybe make the case that it's sometimes hard to tell. This could be God the Father, but the, the, the Holy Spirit knows you. Realize that. The Holy Spirit knows you. God knows you. And God is interceding for you. The Holy Spirit searches your heart and knows what is the mind of the Spirit. And what does this mean? To me, this means that the Holy Spirit knows us, and the Holy Spirit knows God's will, and the Holy Spirit intercedes for us accordingly. You hear that? I mean, think about that. We may not always know God's will. We may not always know what God is doing, what is the outcome, what's his, what's his divine plan in a, in a difficult situation, but God does. And the Holy Spirit knows you, and the Holy Spirit knows God, and the Holy Spirit is interceding for you to God the Father according to the will of God. He's not interceding for you according to your will. No, better. He's interceding for you according to God's will. What is God's will? God's will is for you and me to be saved and to know him. You can see John 3.16. You can see 2 Peter 3.8-9. And, and really, I think we can indirectly apply this passage the way my youth pastor did, that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us with groanings too deep for words in difficult moments and things like that. But if we look at the trajectory about where the Apostle Paul is about to take this, it's about God's good plan of salvation. And some of us already know Christ, but the Holy Spirit is interceding for us to help us to trust in him deeper, to help us grow in him, to help us to become more more deeply devoted disciples of him. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us to, to keep us from falling away, from backsliding, from, from, you know, from um, going the way of the world. The Holy Spirit is interceding so that we can live John 15, 4, which says to abide in him. The Holy Spirit is interceding in that way. And I think the Holy Spirit is also interceding so that we can be a witness, so that other people through us can come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. The Holy Spirit is interceding for other people to come to know him. God's will is for us to depend upon him and grow in him and walk with him. In verses 28 through 30, we see God's good plan. Look at verse 28. We're just kind of walking verse by verse through this passage. Verse 28 reads, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What an awesome verse, right? For those who love God, all things work together for good. All things. For those who are called according to his purpose. Remember, this passage, this verse must be read in context. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us and interceding according to the will of God. And this verse is about how things work together. How things work together. The Holy Spirit's intercession, intercession works together for our spiritual upbuilding and our spiritual growth and our spiritual salvation. And it says, for those who love God. Do we love God? If we love God, respond. Say amen. 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 Do we love God? Do I love God? We can make it more personal when you go home. Do we love God? Do we want to organize our life around him? Do we want to make him Lord of our life? Does he matter to us? If we love God, this verse says all things work together for good and according to his purpose. The good... I think the good in this verse, what is the good? You know, you could go into a lot of discussion. We could have a sermon series about what is the good? And I think, in a simple way of putting it, the good is about conformity to Christ. God has a salvation plan. Uh, verses 29 through 30 read the following. Let's read verses 29 through 30. This is where it gets really deep. For those whom he foreknew, 
He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And we see God's good plan of salvation right there. And, and, and I, I want to say it's not as simple as it looks because people have debated to discuss the order of how all these things work for like 500 years at least. There was a church reformation about these verses and, and these chapters of Romans. You know, as Martin Luther was, was studying the original Greek of Romans chapter 8 and realized we're not saved by doing penance. We're saved by grace through faith. And that's, that's what this is about. For those whom God foreknew, God's foreknowledge, he also predestined, that means to choose out beforehand, to be conformed. What's the purpose? Conformed to the image of his son. God wants us to be conformed to Jesus' likeness, sanctified. How does that happen? By the Holy Spirit. At the end of this, it actually happens through glorification. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified, which, mean, which is a legal term with some forensic ramifications. It means to be declared righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. We're ultimately glorified when we go to be with the Lord in heaven. And then, then we are totally sanctified, totally made righteous. This, in a way, this, these two verses are very straightforward. This is God's salvation plan. Those God foreknew, God's foreknowledge, is God's ability to see the future. God is omnipresent, and that means that he is present everywhere, including outside of time. We talked about that a little bit in Sunday school this week. How does, how does God see the future? God is outside of time. Imagine a, a book, uh, pick some classic Shakespeare book or, or even a newer, pick some book, a thousand pages, a big long book. Uh, let's just go with the Count of Monte Cristo because I watched that movie last week and it's a good movie. Um, and I looked up the book and I think the book is like 4,000 pages, but maybe I'm, I'm a little bit off there. Still a big, long book. The author of the book can go to any page he or she wants, right? The author of the Count of Monte Cristo can go to page 500 if he wants, can go to page 1,000 if he wants, can go to page 1 if he wants because the author of the book is outside the book. God is outside of time. God can go to any time period he wants. He can go back to Adam and Eve if he wants. He can go future to the new heaven and new earth if he wants. God is outside of time. He can go anywhere he wants. God is omnipresent. That means he's present everywhere in time at the, at the same time. Do you realize that? That's pretty powerful. Present everywhere in time at the same time. Very powerful, very philosophical. It makes my brain hurt. So this is saying that those God looked to the future and saw they would be Christians, those he predestined. Now, what did God predestine them for? This passage says uh, God predestined them to be conformed to the image of, of his son. God did not predestine them to be saved and then live like the devil. No, absolutely not. God did not predestine uh, us, if we are in Christ, to say a sinner's prayer, say a prayer of salvation, and continue living for the devil, living for the world. No, God predestined us to be conformed to, to, to the image of his son. Romans 12, 1 through 2, we'll come back to that. Christians are predestined to become like Jesus. And this happens in order that Jesus might be, this passage says, the firstborn among many brethren. What does that mean? It means that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus was not born. That would be the, 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 the heresy of Arianism. 
or Jehovah's Witnesses. So don't, don't take this verse to mean that Jesus was literally born. Jesus has always existed co-eternal with God the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He was never born. This is referring to the rights and privileges of the firstborn. Jesus has all the rights and privileges of the firstborn. He is the firstborn of the church. He is the head. John MacArthur shares, firstborn means that he is the preeminent one. Jesus is the only one who is the rightful heir of all things. Jesus Christ is the most notable one among those who have become brethren by being made like him. Now look again at verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Okay, so we see the predestined and we see the called. To be predestined means to choose out beforehand. And this means that those God foreknew, those, that, that is, those God knew would be saved, he predestined them. He chose them beforehand. That is, he chose them to be saved in eternity past. Now, at a certain point, God calls them. You can see Acts 16, 14 about that. This means that the Holy Spirit opens our eyes so that we can understand that we are sinners in need of a Savior. And we are saved. Sometimes the call does not happen all at once for us. Meaning God may call you at one time, but it, it may take some time before you are convicted. You're a sinner in need of a Savior and you actually respond to God's call because you have free will. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said that he became a Christian kicking and screaming. Somebody else wrote that the hound of heaven per, per, pursued him. So it could take 10 years in between the time the Holy Spirit starts calling, starts convicting you, and the time that you repent and turn to him. Those God's calls will be saved and are justified. That means that God declares us as righteous. Lastly, the justified are glorified. That means that when we go to heaven, we are literally sinless. We don't need a place to go to in between earth and heaven to take care of the remaining sin. God purges them. God, this verse is saying that. We become glorified. We become totally righteous. That's why Paul could write in 2 Corinthians, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment some a Christian dies and goes home to the Lord to be in heaven, that person is sinless, is spotless, is righteous, is totally glorified. Now, I stated that the predestined are those God foreknew, and that is generally what I believe. But we got to take a little excursus right here to, to talk about this for a moment. Maybe. <laughs> no, we will. Um, you see why I divided this in two parts. This is the last part of the sermon here. You know... As I stated, I believe that predestination is based off of God's foreknowledge. Pre but, but predestination, that word, is a broad concept in, in that what is foreordained can be any number of occurrences, such as the Romans and Jews killing Jesus in Acts 4.28. That was predestined by God. It was chosen by God. It was foreordained by God. The elect experiencing fullness of life in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. That is predestined by God. The elect is a reference to the corporate church. That's quite clear. The elect is a corporate term, a corporate church term. But, but predestination, the predestined are individual events, individuals within the events. So why do we need predestined for salvation? And, and let's talk about that for just a moment. Jesus says in John 6, 44, no one can come to me, that is him, unless the father who sent 
me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So Jesus is saying no one can come to him except that the Father who sent Jesus draws them to him. We need drawn to Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit to prompt us and to convict us we are a sinner in need of a Savior, and that's why we need predestined. John 6, 65, same, same, same chapter. Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me... Um, next, I'm sorry, I read the wrong one. And Jesus was saying, for this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. In John chapter 14, Jesus says it again. Salvation is God's idea. The Bible affirms God's sovereignty, but also our free will. Salvation does start with God, but we do have free will. Salvation is God's idea. Remember that. We were dead in our sins, but God wants a relationship with us. And if we are totally depraved, how do we receive Christ? If we are totally depraved, totally fallen, how do we receive Christ? We need the Holy Spirit to draw us to him. And that is predestination. God's idea, God predestined someone to be saved and the Holy Spirit draws them to him. And I'm making the case that the predestined is at least to some extent related to God's foreknowledge. God knowing that they will receive salvation given the opportunity. But how does that foreknowledge work? Remember that technically God does not look to the future to see who will be saved. Everything is eternally present to God. I actually believe the term foreknowledge is somewhat anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic language. That means it's ascribing to God human attributes. God doesn't have to look to the future. God is in the future at the same time as God is in the past, at the same time as God is present, because God is omnipresent. Bottom line, God knows who would receive him in their own free will, given the opportunity, and God makes sure they have the opportunity. The opportunity means that they receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Remember, no one can receive Jesus without the Holy Spirit's conviction. We are dead in our sins. And, and so this is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. This means the grace of the Lord coming beforehand, giving us the convicting power of the Holy Spirit so we can be saved. I would not be opposed to the idea that the Lord gives everyone at some time or many times the prevenient grace of the Holy Spirit convicting them that they are a sinner in need of a Savior so that in their own free will they can receive Christ. Although the predestined are those God knows will be saved. The predestined would be those God knows will receive him. Real quickly, there's a view called Molinism, and I just want to summarize it real quick. It's Molinism, named after this guy in church history who's uh, dead and with the Lord now because he lived in the 1600s, and if he was still alive, he would... That'd be amazing. So it's called Molinism after this guy. And sometimes it's called middle knowledge. And I want to summarize it here because I'm leaning towards this view. This is, the, this is the view that God knows any choice we would freely make in any possible circumstance, in any possible world. All right? Now, this, is, this means God knows counterfactuals, it's called. God knows the subjunctives. God knows the choices you will make. God also knows the choices that you could make. See the difference? God knows every choice you could possibly make in any possible world, in any possible place. If you were born 2,000 years ago, God would know the choice you would make. If you were born in Africa, God knows the choice you would make. God knows all those other choices, okay? God knows in any possible world, if with the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, with prevenient grace, we would freely receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. God then puts us in those situations. Then God providentially orchestrates us into events. But 
but those are the events that God knows we would freely choose. In other words, you are free in freely making choices, but God is providentially orchestrating behind the scenes. But since God knows any choice you could make, it's a little bit of both, if that makes sense. No, it makes our brains hurt. It's called middle knowledge because it is based on God's middle knowledge. And Dr. William Lane Craig, if you went home and you want to know more about this, you can go to YouTube and search middle knowledge William Lane Craig or middle knowledge or Molinism William Lane Craig. And there's lots of videos and podcasts and articles which you could write about, uh, read about it or watch about it. So William Lane Craig breaks down, or Molinism breaks down three views on three, three things, okay? Three moments. And the first moment is God's knowledge of all necessary truths. For example, the first moment is God knows the laws of logic. Those are next necessary truths. In the third moment, in the third moment of God's knowledge is his knowledge of, of the actual world which he has created. God's free knowledge. But in between God's natural knowledge and his free knowledge is that middle knowledge, Okay. In this moment, God knows what every possible creature would do, not just could do, but would do in any possible set of circumstances. For example, he knows whether Peter, if he were placed in certain circumstances, would deny Christ three times. By his natural knowledge, God knew in the first moment all the possible things that Peter could do if placed in such circumstances. But now, in this second moment, God knows what Peter would do. In fact, in fact, freely choose to do in, under such circumstances. This is not because Peter would be casually determined by the circumstances to act in this way. No, Peter is entirely free. Peter is free, and under the same circumstances, he could choose to act in another way. But God knows which way Peter would freely choose. God's knowledge of Peter in this respect is not simple foreknowledge. For maybe God will decide not to place Peter under such circumstances, or even not to create him at all. Middle knowledge, like natural knowledge, thus is logically prior to the decision of the divine will to create a world. Let me, let me restate that a little bit. This is really interesting. God knew all of this before even deciding to create the world. He knew what you would do, when you would do it, but I actually believe God knew what you could do if circumstances were different. God knows this, okay? Foreknowledge says God knows what will happen. Middle knowledge means God knows what could happen. God knows the subjunctives. God knows what a person will do in their free will in any possible world, and God orchestrates that. They do it of their free will, but God predetermines it based on their free will. This means, and this is the main point, this is where it matters. This is where it really matters. This means that no one is eternally damned to hell who would be saved given the opportunity. I believe it violates the character of God and God's love in 2 Peter 3 through 9 and John 3 16 and John chapter 16 verse 8 and many other passages to say anything otherwise. No one is eternally damned to hell who would be saved given the opportunity. So right here in this passage, we see God's logical plan of salvation. And we see in this passage that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us to help us be conformed to the image of Jesus. Theologians use a phrase to talk about how Christ followers are already redeemed, but will not experience the fullness of redemption until they live with God in heaven. You ever think about that? We are already redeemed. If you know Jesus, you are saved. You are already redeemed. 
But you're not experiencing the total redeemed world yet, are you? You're not, re- you're not experiencing the total restored world. You're not experiencing the new heaven and new earth yet, are you? You're already redeemed, but we're still dealing with the problems of a fallen world. We're, we're still dealing with sins in our life and the lives of others. We're still dealing with problems. An example of this came about a little girl in England. Her name was Josie Caven, and she was born profoundly deaf. Or I think it's Josie, actually. Josie Caven. She was pre- born profoundly deaf. Growing up, she often felt isolated because of her inability to hear. But that changed after receiving cochlear implants during the Christmas season. At the age of 12 years old, she heard clearly for the first time. That's powerful, isn't it? the age of 12, year old, 12 years old, she heard clearly for the very first time. The first sound she heard was the song Jingle Bells coming from the radio. Age of 12, Christmas time, and she hears Jingle Bells. Was Josie's hearing restored? Yes, completely. Was she hearing well immediately? Not exactly. Her mother said she is having to learn what each new sound is and what it means. She will ask, was that a door closing? And she has realized for the first time that the light in her room hums when it is switched on. All these sounds that we understand what they are and she had to learn. She even knows what her name sounds like now because before she could not hear the S sound in the middle of the word. Seeing her face light up as she hears everything around her is all I could have wished for this Christmas, her mother said. Josie's hearing was restored, but that restoration introduced her to the daily adventure of learning to distinguish each new sound in the hearing world. It's the already and the not yet. And as Christians, when we commit our lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we are redeemed. We are totally saved, but we have to grow in the knowledge and in the faith, growing to be more like Jesus. And eventually, we get to heaven, and we are totally glorified, totally made like Jesus. Until then, we must walk by the Spirit and understand that the Holy Spirit is interceding for you with groanings too deep for words. The Holy Spirit, I believe, by that same verse, is interceding for others to come to know him as Lord and Savior. And once you are saved, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you to help you grow to be more like him. Lord God, we look at this marvelous, awesome passage. And I hope, Lord God, that we are struck by the power that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us. And the Holy Spirit is praying for us with groans too deep for words. And may that grip us more than the intricacies and the nuance of the verse about your salvation plan. Lord God, as we look at those verses, there's been a lot of arguments, debates, even divisions of how some of those soteriological, those words that have to do with the plan of salvation work out in our lives. And Lord God, never let us get so enamored by them that we miss the awesomeness, the awesome power that the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, that you want a relationship with us, that as 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9 says, you are waiting Because you don't want any to perish, but you want all to come to repentance. All to come to a trust in you as Lord and Savior. And as John 16, 8 says, when the Holy Spirit comes, we know the Holy Spirit has come. He will convict the world of sin. 
Lord God, thank you for the Holy Spirit's conviction. Help us growing closer to you. And Lord God, if anyone here needs to respond to you for the first time, may today be the day to confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, believe in you as the one and only Savior, trust in you and commit to you. And Lord God, use us to share the gospel with others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand for the closing song. And the altars are always open if you need to come forward and pray to the Lord about yeah, anything. We're going to go back by faith. Awesome. And we're going to sing the first verse.